If you have your Bible, make your way back to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter uh, 10, verse 17 is where we'll be today. As we continue our series through the Gospel of Mark, it's been so enriching for me and a blessing for me to study it. I hope it's been a blessing for you to feast on the Word of God uh, from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, When I was in high school, I went to a small, very small Christian school in Richmond, Virginia, and uh, our, to, to give you an example of how small my school was, I think there were 12 in my graduating class. And if you had any athletic ability at all, you were going to play whatever sport they happened to have. We only had soccer, basketball, and baseball for guys to be involved in. And uh, in, in my junior and senior year of high school, I think it's safe to say that I was the best baseball player uh, that our, our little school had uh, on their baseball team. I played American Legion uh, baseball during the summer, and the caliber of competition was much greater and and uh, more uh, profound. And yet, I was able to hold my own. I even uh, my my claim to fame in my baseball career is hitting a home run out of the a minor league baseball stadium in Colonial Heights, Virginia. Uh, and I remember uh, hitting this line drive, and it was headed down the left field line. And I could picture Harry Carey going, "It might be, it could be, it is." And I remember my coach at first base just waving his arms like, this park is too big, get running. And I just stood there and watched it go. And uh, thankfully, I was right and he was wrong. And, and uh, of course, if it had fallen short, I'd have been the one standing there looking stupid with a very long single. And uh, uh, But uh, I, I loved baseball. I wanted to make a career of it. And uh, one day, I had heard that the Cincinnati Reds were going to hold a tryout camp uh, in Richmond. And so... I decided I had nothing to lose and everything to gain, and so I went uh, to the Cincinnati Reds tryout camp. And uh, I thought I was a pretty good player until I showed up to that training camp and I saw guys who were playing in college. I was probably a high school junior that year, and uh, these guys, uh, their skill level was way, way better than mine. And uh, I wasn't very long into that tryout that day that I thought, well, I'm not going to be getting a contract from the Cincinnati Reds this afternoon, I can tell you that. And, uh, you know, I, these guys were really good. And uh, when we define as humans what's good, it's pretty subjective, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of like beauty. You know, they say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And when we say, you know, something is good or, or we talk about goodness that we humans have, it, it really is subjective. Oftentimes when we go to a funeral... Uh, or to a visitation at a funeral, they'll say things like, well, he was a very good man, or he, she was a very good woman. And uh, we don't express it, but instantly what we know and understand in our vernacular is that compared to a lot of other people that we know, this person who passed is a good person because we're comparing them to all of the not-so-good people that we've come across in life, right? And, uh, and we don't express it that way. But, but this attitude of, of defining goodness creeps into our thoughts when it comes uh, to pleasing God. Uh, twice in the book of Psalms, in Psalm chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 3, and also in Psalm 53, 1 through 3, the scripture tells us that there is none who does good, no, not one. The Apostle Paul quoted this passage of scripture in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, to emphasize that we're all sinners before a holy and righteous God. Now, in our study today, through the Gospel of Mark, 
we're going to see a man who believed that he had enough goodness within himself uh, to please God. And yet Jesus called this young man to risk everything that he had in order to have salvation. And so I'm calling this message, The Risks of Salvation, and our text is going to highlight for us two insights that reveal uh, the risks of salvation as we think about this today. Now, on the back of your prayer sheet, there's a study guide, and I want to encourage you to follow along. And the first insight that we see is that we need to ask the right questions. We need to ask the right questions. Look back at your copy of the Word of God to verse number 17. Now, as he was going out, now this is talking about Jesus. Earlier in verse number 10, we see that he is in a house with his disciples, and he's teaching them uh, back in verse number 10. And so he's going out of the house. He's headed to Jerusalem, we learn later in the chapter. Uh, and he's going to, uh, to Jerusalem to lay down his life. So he leaves the house. And as he's going down the road, this person comes running to him and kneels to him before him and asks him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And so Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal or do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. This young man comes and he obviously has great reverence for who Jesus is. He comes and kneels before him as as he's described. He's wealthy. He's influential. The Gospel of Luke tells us that he's he's a ruler among the people. He's a leader. So this man had class and stamina, and yet he humbles himself, and he kneels before the Lord Jesus, and he addresses him in a way that, that was uncommon by calling him good teacher. You see, the Jews would not refer to anyone uh, as good. They only referred to God as being good. And, and yet this man indicated that he viewed eternal life as something that he could inherit or that something that he could achieve by doing good. Now, uh, because he was young, he probably received his wealth through an inheritance. Maybe it came from his parents. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that he was not a millionaire because he developed some app for a smartphone. Uh, I, I can say that with confidence because smartphones hadn't been invented yet. And uh, so he got his, his money, his resources, probably through an inheritance. And it made sense to him and his way of thinking that if I can inherit wealth here, I can somehow do something to inherit eternal life. Now, his question is in direct contrast to what we saw last week back in verse 15, where Jesus was talking about the little children and blessing them and saying, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for as such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So you've got this man saying, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus has already said, you can't do it unless you become dependent like a little child. That was the lesson from last week, that we have to be completely dependent on God uh, for our salvation. And so down in verse 18, Jesus challenges his faulty perception and his subjectiveness as to what is good and how we measure what's good as humans by asking his own question, why do you call me good? Uh, good teacher was extravagant language because uh, only God was considered to be good. And so what Jesus was saying is, 
Do you realize that you're calling me God? Do you understand that I really am God? That was why he asked this question. Jesus was highlighting his shallow use of the word to get him to think about the fact that I am God. No one is good, absolutely perfect, except God alone. He is the source and standard of what it means to be good. And so when we say that somebody is good, we have to look at that in light of who God really is. How does he stack up and compare to Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ truly is good. Amen? Uh, Are we in a Baptist church? Okay, thank you. I just checking to make sure you guys are awake. Because uh, Jesus Christ is the one who's good. He defines what's good. And, and so he's questioning this man. And then he answers this question down in verse number 19. Well, you know the commandments. Uh, do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Uh, Jesus... Uh, ask him these questions, and it's interesting that Jesus gives, uh, he, he starts with the second table of the Ten Commandments. The first commandments, the first four, deal with our vertical relationship with God. And yet Jesus starts with the last group of commandments that deal with our relationships with one another because those are a good way to determine whether we're keeping the first four uh, in how we treat one another. And so Jesus starts with that, and he also gives these commandments in an unusual order. Jesus gives him these commandments in order of number six, seven, eight, nine, and then he goes back to number five uh, by saying, honor your father and mother. Uh, Now, the command, do not defraud, Jesus was substituting for the commandment number ten, which is do not covet, because defrauding is a concrete example uh, of, of covetousness, and it was a special temptation for the rich, because the rich in the first century typically uh, abused and exploited the poor beneath them and, t- and took advantage of them uh, with their resources. And, and so Jesus is limiting his questioning of the man to kind of see where he's at. And, and this guy uh, goes to, to ask another question that brings us to the second thing we have to understand. We need to have the right self-understanding. And so this man says to Jesus, and notice when he first kneels before Jesus, he calls him good teacher. And then in response to Jesus questioning in verse 20, he drops the term good, doesn't he? And he just calls him teacher. He says, teacher, I've kept all of these things from my youth. This man's reply shows that he sincerely believed that he'd kept these commandments since he was a young boy. Now, in the Jewish culture, at the age of 12, when a, a boy becomes a man, they have what's called a bar mitzvah to signify the fact that they are becoming a man. That means that they are taking personal responsibility uh, for the law. It, by partaking in a bar mitzvah, you become a son of the law. And, and so that's when he would take on the, the role of being a man and, and keeping the religious commandments and the religious expectations of his day. Like many religious people of his day, this rich young ruler sincerely believed that he was a good person because he had kept up with external religious uh, uh, responsibilities. And yet Jesus comes along and focuses on the condition of men's hearts. Maybe this young man was not around when he heard or when Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 uh, six and seven, where he equated 
adultery with lust. He would say, you've heard that it has been said not to commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman and lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart with her. Uh, You've heard that it has been said not to murder. But I say to you, if you have anger with your brother without cause, it's like you've murdered him in your heart already. So Jesus is more interested in the condition of our hearts not on the condition of the outside uh, external things that we do that make us appear good. There's another man in Scripture who was insecure about his future. And just like this rich young ruler who felt like he had it all together, except he was wondering what was lacking in his life to have eternal life, there's a man in the, in the book of Acts who uh, is known as the Philippian jailer. You recall the story of how Paul and Silas were passing through Philippi and there was a, a young girl there who was demon-possessed and she was following them around day after day saying, these men are servants of the Most High God. And the Bible tells us that Paul got annoyed and he turned around and he cast the demons out of this young girl. And the Bible tells us that the people who owned her, she was a slave, And the people who owned her used her to tell fortunes, and they received their income from exploiting this slave girl who was demon-possessed. And and since she didn't have the demon anymore, she couldn't tell fortunes. And so they got mad, and they drug Paul and Silas to the magistrates and said, These men are troubling our community, and they've taken away our source of income. And, uh, and, and the magistrates commanded that they be beaten with rods. And so they, they stripped off their clothes and, and started beating them. Uh, and, and then they, they were thrown into the jail, and the Philippian jailer put them in stocks. Now, can you imagine being uh, with your back laid open by the rods that you had applied to it, people beating you unmercifully, and then you're thrown into a dark, uh, dungeon, your feet are put in stocks. You know how hard it is to sit with your feet in stocks and you're, you can't lean on your back because it hurts so much? And yet the Bible tells us that in the midst of all of that, Paul and Silas at midnight were singing and offering praise to God. And, and in their, their worship of God, God did something miraculous and an earthquake came and it shook the doors of the prison and the foundations were broken and the doors came open and all the prisoners' chains fell off. And in that culture, a a jailer who let prisoners escape was going to pay for for that crime with his life. And so he's standing in the doorway, and Paul could see him from inside the dungeon, and he's about to plunge a sword into his chest. And Paul says, whoa, 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 hey, stop. We're all here. Don't, Don't do yourself any harm. Now, this jailer could not comprehend that that the prisoners wouldn't have run off. I mean, he saw the condition of the jail. It was hard for him to comprehend. And so he asked this question uh, of the Apostle Paul. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's a good question. Some could say it's a great question. And yet he thought he had to do something to, to avoid the death penalty. And yet Paul gives a great answer. And obviously this man is ignorant because the best question is, what has God already done so that I can be saved? And so Paul tells him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your entire household. And the Bible tells us that that he took Paul and Silas and he tended to their wounds and and he, he brought them to his house. And then him and his whole family got saved and baptized that night because it was what God had done on his behalf, not anything this man had done. The correct question is not to ask, what can we do to inherit eternal life? And it's not, what can I do in order to be saved? The correct question is always, what has God done to secure my salvation? 
You see, it all depends on God. That's why that song, Mighty to Save, is so important. Because we can't save ourselves. We can't do enough good works to earn eternal life. We can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We can't earn salvation. God had to secure uh, and procure our salvation on our behalf. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That God looked down from heaven. He saw the fact that we couldn't save ourselves. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross to put his life on the line and to shed his own blood to sacrifice himself so that we wouldn't have to give our lives. And then he was buried in a tomb and he rose again the third day. He proved himself to be the Son of God. And that is the best news ever. Hello? Okay. Y'all must have stayed up late last night. Man, I need help today. I mean, y'all got to wake it up here a little bit. Help me, okay? Uh, but, but, but it is all about what God has done. And so the question by way of application is, are you still asking what you need to do to please God? Are you still trying to figure out what do I need to do to earn God's favor? What, what do I need to do to, to make God love me enough? If you're asking those kinds of questions, I've got two words for you. You ready? Write these down. They're very important. You ready? Stop it. Stop asking, what can I do to get God to love me more? What, what can I do? You see, it's arrogance for us to believe that God wants or needs anything that we have and to offer that we can offer Him in return to get Him to love us more. It's foolishness and it's a lie from Satan. You see, the Apostle Paul, I mentioned this earlier in the book of Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is making the case that we're all guilty before God. And he said in, it says in Romans chapter 9, or 3 verse 9, What then, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have become together unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their lips and their tongues they have practiced deceit. The, the poison of asps is in their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed innocent blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. And he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that the world may become guilty before God. There is, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law of the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We quote Romans 3.23, and we need to understand that the word all means what, class? All. That means we are all guilty before God. There is none of us who is good. And when we compare ourselves to other people, we can look around, and we can always, always find somebody who is a bigger sinner than we are. Right? And we like to, to find people like that because then we can look down our nose at them and go, you filthy wretch. You know? We're like that tax collector or the Pharisee who goes to church and says, oh God, I'm thank you, thankful that I'm not like this filthy tax collector over here. 
But you see, when we compare ourselves to Jesus Christ, the only human being who's ever lived a sinless, perfect life, and when we shine ourselves up against Jesus, it, it, we, we should feel about like I felt that day at that Cincinnati Reds tryout camp. When I'm looking around going, huh, I got nothing on these guys. Big whoop. You know? I'm nothing. And that's what this man didn't understand. But we cannot earn God's favor. We have no resources. And so we have to ask the right question. What has God done to secure my salvation? If you're working to try to secure your own salvation and you're trying to work at getting God to love you more, just stop it. Because the Bible says in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a marvelous blessing that is, that Christ has already done everything we need. Well, that leads us to the second insight in our text this morning, and that is we need to make the right commitment. We need to make the right commitment down in verse number 21. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way and sell whatever you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and take up the cross and follow me. Jesus stares deeply into this man's eyes and he looks at him with love, the Bible tells us. And, and what is love, by the way? You remember from our revival last fall with Dr. Waylon Owens, how we define what love is? The word there in, in uh, verse 22 is, uh, for love is the Greek word agape. It's a sacrificial love. It is the giving of myself sacrificially for the holiness and righteousness of another. Nowhere else in Scripture do we see that Jesus looked at this man and loved him other than we hear the Apostle John say, refer to himself as the one, the disciple that Jesus loved. But Jesus looked inside of this man. He, he wasn't fooled by his external forms of religion. And he looked at him and he said, there's one thing you lack. Go and sell whatever you have. Give it all away to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come take up your cross and follow me. So was Jesus' demand harsh? Was he saying you can't have wealth? Was he saying to this man, uh, you've got to buy your way into heaven? Absolutely not. Because Jesus looked deep inside of this man and he loved him. He was drawn to him and in the tenderest of tone, Jesus meant every syllable of what he said. Uh, if you want to have eternal life, you need to come to me on my terms and you need to trust in me, not in your resources. You see, Jesus knew, in spite of this man's external religious piety, that materialism had occupied the place of God in his life. And that because uh, he, he, of this, he lived in a constant state of breaking the first commandment, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. And so what Jesus was doing was testing to see whether this rich young ruler was going to trust in his riches or trust in God, specifically in Jesus Christ. Was Jesus' demand harsh? I mean, what if Jesus Christ spoke to you in a worship service some Sunday, and I hope he does speak to you someday, and he says to you, I want you to sell everything you have, and I want you to follow me to the foreign mission field. Would you do it? Would you follow him? Would you say, Lord, I can't wait to have a yard sale tomorrow and sell everything I've got? And some of you are rummaging through your house and all the stuff that you have 
And you're thinking, well, I wonder if he means that. Or he's talking about the car in my garage, whatever. But Jesus was testing him. You see, this is not general advice for all believers. It was appropriate in this instance. But you've got to know, when you come to Jesus Christ, you have to be willing to put away every God that is more important to you than Jesus. You have to be willing to put away positions and possessions and power and persons and passions that you have and you can never allow them to take the place of God in your life. Jesus wasn't preaching and making a case for uh, universal uh, asceticism where we give up all of our wealth and we become monks and have nothing and deny ourselves of everything. The Old Testament holds up some rich, godly men like Abraham and Boaz and Job as examples of how rich people can follow God by faith and how they can use their resources for the kingdom of God. Tertullian, one of the apostolic fathers, said that we should not refuse the blessings that God has poured out upon us. If God has given us much, it's because of His goodness, and we have a right to enjoy it, but God expects us to use those resources for His kingdom and for His glory. Jesus wasn't commending poverty or saying you have to be poor in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because having wealth and being rich doesn't make you covetous. It doesn't make you greedy. I've met a lot of poor people who are just as greedy. And they're angry about what they don't have. And they're unhappy about their lack of resources. And, and, and uh, George MacDonald said it's not the rich man who, is, who only is under the dominion of things. They too are slaves who having no money are unhappy for the lack of it. The money that one has and the money the other would have is in each the cause of an eternal stupidity. Isn't that interesting? You, you, and we see this in our society with gambling and playing the lottery. Well, you never know unless you play. Let me tell you something, man. I'll never play the lottery and I'll never gamble because you know why? I might as well flush the money I'm using for that down the toilet because there is no way on God's green earth he's ever going to let me win anything at that. Can you imagine the preacher won $40 million in the West Virginia lottery? I intend to tithe and give $4 million of it to Moundsville Baptist Church. It's never going to happen because I'm never going to buy a ticket. Because I understand that I'm not going to have uh, possessions. Wealth can be spiritually beneficial. Every church that our little church plant had in New Hampshire was bought and paid for by a wealthy friend of mine in North Carolina. He would call me up and he'd say, Brother Ralph, I, got, I sold some more property and I need to send you some money for you to use for God's work up there in New Hampshire. New Hampshire. <laughs> And, and we bought chairs because we needed chairs. And, and it was bought and paid for because God had poured out His blessings upon my friend. You see, First Timothy 6.10 is very instructive to us because it says, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not money. Money is an inanimate object. And as Jesus looked at this man, He said, You have made financial resources your source of security and you've got to get rid of that because I'm going to call you to follow me and radically follow me means you're going to have to depend on me for everything and the poor man looked at this look at verse 22 and notice what Jesus says you're to take up the cross and follow me we don't understand the scandal in our modern uh, 21st century mindset of the scandal of the cross but let me tell you to tell a Jew in the first century 
that they've got to give everything up and they've got to take up a cross and follow you. That was the most scandalous thing ever. Because it was reserved, it was a form of execution that was reserved for the worst that society had. The Romans wouldn't even do it on their own citizens. It was so bad. And it was an instrument of torture and intimidation. And Jesus is quite literally saying, are you willing to lay down everything and take up a cross and follow me? And his face fell. The word there, the phrase that that he was sad at this means... That, that the clouds of sadness rolled in like a thunderstorm rolls in. I was sitting out on my back porch yesterday, and you could see the storm coming. And that's what was going on in this man's countenance. His face fell, and he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. You see, we heard from Jesus in his own, from his own lips a few weeks ago in Mark 8:36. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You see, this man needed to become vulnerable like a child. Jesus had just finished teaching them, unless you become like a little child, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. Isn't it ironic how the kingdom of God works? That the children in the former passage of Scripture that we studied last week are are said to not lack anything, and they have all of the kingdom of God at their disposal. And here's a man who had everything, and yet Jesus says you're still lacking something. You have to get rid of what's standing between me and you and follow me. You see, Jesus was offering himself as a substitute for this man's possessions. And he had to stand there and he had to wait. Do I love Jesus or do I love what I have? And he walked away. He made the wrong commitment. Now, in my pocket here this morning, what is this? It's a dollar bill. I wish it was a thousand. I wish I had a thousand dollars to say here. But this dollar bill belongs to the first person who will come up here and get it from me. Anybody who wants to have it can come have it. What if, what if it was a $10 bill? What if it was a $1,000 bill? How, how come nobody's moving? What's the problem? It's because you all all have your own dollars, don't you? You don't want to come get it from the preacher, even though he's just said, I mean, I'm standing in a pulpit. Am I lying or not? Would I give it away? You want to come find out? Ellie, come here. Come here, Ellie. Come here, sweetheart. Come here. Come here. Come right up here. Can I pick you up? Oh, here. Did you do anything to earn that? Did you did you come mow my grass to get that dollar? Are you going to come mow my grass this afternoon? No, you're not, are you? You can go back to your seat. Thank you. What is that? That's faith. You see, it's being willing to say to God, I'm not going to bring my own dollar. The reason that is so hard, and I have done that so many times with people And it is so hard for adults to reach out across my desk and take a dollar bill because they have their own dollar. And they don't want to be indebted to me for anything. And yet that dollar bill represents the keys to the kingdom of God. And it represents all of the riches of glory. And it represents eternal life that we have to be willing to receive like a little child. And we have to be willing to accept it because that's what faith is. Forsaking all, all, I trust Him. F-A-I-T-H. 
And what Jesus was saying to this man is that there is no room for you to be following me and something else. It's never a Jesus plus fill-in-the-blank mindset. It is what God has done. And that's why when we come to, to Jesus Christ and He confronts us with the good news, we have to, did you know that the ground at the foot of the cross is level for everybody, whether you're rich or poor? Whether you're from, from the United States of America or the darkest country in all of Africa and you're the poorest of the poor, when you come to Jesus Christ, He says you have to admit that you're a sinner. You have to agree with me that you fall short of my standard of perfection. And you have to believe with all of your heart that I died in your place, that I was buried in a tomb, and that I rose again the third day, and I proved myself to be the Son of God. And then the C of the ABCs is that you would confess Him as your Lord and Savior. You say, well, how do I do that? You have to do what Ellie did by faith. You have to come up here and get that dollar bill from Jesus. And you have to say, I'm not going to bring my own. I'm not going to be able to save myself. I'm going to trust you to save me. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ or you're looking at Jesus plus something else, Jesus would say to you, I want you to trust me by faith. Forsake it all and trust me. F-A-I-T-H. Maybe you're a child of God here today and, and other things have been allowed to take a higher priority in your life than a radical commitment to Jesus Christ. What is it that Jesus would say to you? If you want to follow me, you're going to take up your cross and and you're going to follow me. Because Jesus would say in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust do corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he says in verse 21, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You see, my treasure is not in my wallet. And my treasure is not in my house. And my treasure is not in my kids or my grandkids or my granddoggies. We're babysitting our granddoggie this week. Pray for me. But it's awesome because I get a spoiler and send her back to her parents. So it's great. I can teach her all the bad habits that that I never wanted our dogs to do, like begging at the table and stuff. And we'll just have a good time. And then I'll send her back. But you see, my treasure is not in any of that. My treasure is in Jesus Christ. Because it's of Him that I have my life and breath and being that brings us to our God encounter for the morning. And it actually comes in two parts. That God will save those who risk it all by faith and trust in what He has done to provide eternal life. God will save those who risk it all by faith in what He has done. The question is not what can I do to inherit eternal life. It is what has Jesus Christ done for me. And if you're bringing anything to the table and you're thinking that Jesus Christ and I make a pretty good team, you are wrong. Because Jesus Christ is His own team. And He wants you to be His child by faith. And so don't let anything stand before you because God will save those who risk it all. He was asking this man to roll the dice and get rid of all of his financial security and allow Jesus to multiply the loaves and the fishes on his behalf and to be his sustenance and to provide for him through the rest of his days. God will save those who risk it all by faith and trust in what he has done to provide eternal life. But also there's a reminder that God's reminder for us is that we must never allow anything to be more important to us than him. 
we must never allow anything to become more important to us than Him. What's more important to you than Jesus? Is it your family? Is it your spouse? Is it your kids, your grandkids? Don't let anything take a higher priority. Is it your church? What has higher priority? What's more important to you? Because the first commandment, the greatest commandment, is you shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 20, verse 3. What would Jesus say to you that's standing between you and him today? And that leads us to our Monday morning challenge. By faith, I will risk everything I have by taking up the cross to follow Jesus Christ daily and will never allow anything in my life to become more important to me than Jesus. I have a pastor friend that I think is just a weird bird. He is absolutely my best friend in the, in the, in the world in ministry. We went to seminary together. But when he was in high school, after he got trophies and awards, he was quite a tennis player, um, played well, won championships in tennis. Every reward that he ever got, he threw them away in his trash can. And he took all those certificates and all that stuff and threw it away. And I said, why would you do that? He says, because I didn't want them to become idols to me. I didn't want them to become more important to me than my walk with Jesus Christ. What a radical commitment that is. Sounded strange to me when he was sharing this with me in seminary. You see, we can never allow anything to become more important to us. And we have to take up our cross And follow Jesus daily. We have to risk it all to be his disciple. Because the fact of the matter is, the law will not save us, but we can become a disciple of Jesus Christ. In 1829, a Philadelphia man by the name of George Wilson robbed the U.S. Mail Service. And in the process of that robbery, someone was killed. He was arrested, brought to trial, found guilty, and sentenced to be hanged. And some friends of his intervened on his behalf and Through a long series of events, they were able to secure a pardon for him from President Andrew Jackson. But when George Wilson was informed of the pardon, that he had been freed by the president, he refused to accept the pardon. And the sheriff was afraid to enact the sentence because how could he hang a man who'd been pardoned? And so the appeal was sent to President Jackson, and the perplexed president turned to the United States Supreme Court to decide the case, and Chief Justice Marshall ruled that a pardon is a piece of paper, and the value of it depends on its acceptance by the person who is pardoned. And it can hardly be supposed that a person under the sentence of death would refuse a presidential pardon, but if it is refused, then the person is not pardoned and It's just a piece of paper. And so George Wilson had to be hanged. And George Wilson was executed for his crimes, although there was a pardon from the President of the United States laying on the desk of the sheriff because George Wilson refused to accept it. And Jesus Christ is saying to you today, are you going to follow me? Are you going to trust me by faith? Or are you going to walk away from it like this rich young ruler? and be doomed to eternal hell. I pray that that would never be the case for anybody who would hear the gospel today. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? And remember, faith is forsaking all. I trust Him. Salvation and eternal life is intended for all, but it's only given to those 
who accept it by faith. Father in heaven, we're thankful for today. Lord, we're thankful for the offer of salvation. It is risky. We have to risk everything. Our status, our reputation, our resources. We have to risk it all to follow you. Lord, I pray that there would be people here today under the sound of my voice who have never trusted you by faith the first time. They've never accepted your offer of forgiveness. Maybe today, for the very first time, the Holy Spirit of God has convicted them of of their need to be saved in humble repentance and in faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, I pray that you would save people today, that your Holy Spirit would not let them sleep until they they get their salvation secured by faith in you. Lord, it may be 10 or 11 o'clock tonight. They may not come forward during an invitation, but Lord, they may on their bed tonight cry out to you in faith and ask you to save them. But Lord, the Bible tells us that today is the day of salvation. And so I pray that they would not leave this room without making sure that they're a child of God by faith. Lord, I pray for those of us who are believers today who have our priorities out of whack who've allowed other things to take a higher priority in our lives that are standing between us and an intimate walk with Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would forsake all of that stuff that stands in the way of intimate communion and fellowship with you. Lord, I pray that you'd raise up people who would sell their possessions to go to the foreign mission field to share the gospel in hard-to-reach places because people in other parts of the world who don't have access to the gospel are still waiting. They're looking to the skies. They know there's a God who has plans for them, but they're waiting on a messenger to come and share with them the gospel. So God, I pray that you raise up missionaries out of this church family who would follow you by faith. Lord, I pray that they would take up their cross and follow you. Lord, I've given you a blank check with my life. And Father, I I give you the permission once again to cash that check any way you want to because my trust is in you. Lord, I don't know what you'll do in this invitation, but we pray that people would be obedient to whatever your Holy Spirit is saying to them today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.